Hello and welcome to the 831 Podcast, episode number 31. Thank you very much for coming back, guys. It's good to have you listening. Um, yeah, not too much housekeeping or stuff to go over, really, because I've been trying to put these out regularly for you. So, um, yeah. As always, sponsors, Trojan Nutrition, Trojan Fitness, uh, the Cloud Center Limited, Big shout outs going to obviously A3 Academy where I teach, Sweatbox where I teach, where I train, Pedro Bassa, BJJ, um, all the usual stuff really, you guys know this by now, I'm not going to harp on too much, just want to get into the podcast I know. Um, so yeah, this podcast is with a good friend of mine and a, well, like one of the most prominent figures in UK paragliding really, Jockey Sanderson. Jockey's been synonymous with flight safety, paragliding safety, SIV, etc. for years now. Um, longer than I've been flying. And just listening to the podcast, you'll see his experience and his uh, the amount of time he's spent in the sport is unrivaled, really. Um, and what I found is when people talk about Jockey, it's from a very much a safety point of view or they talk about him and he's got this sort of like um sensible persona around him but when you actually spend time with him he's a great laugh really funny guy really quick-witted enjoyable to spend time with and i wanted that side of things to come over in the podcast so i said to him like this this is not we're going to talk about paragliding obviously that's our mutual ground but this is more about just chat have a chat you know like don't don't worry just look have a chat. and he did he was just himself how he is whenever I spend time with him. So I think you guys are going to really enjoy it and you'll hopefully see a side of Jockey that many of you won't have seen. But um, I've got another one booked in tomorrow as well. So there'll be another one of these coming again tomorrow. I'm keeping quite busy on these. So hopefully you guys will keep listening. I'll keep putting them out. But until then, this is episode 31, Jockey Sanderson. Enjoy, people. Uh, hey jockey we are live thanks for joining me i mean we're not live we're recording now so (laughs) how's things very good mate how are you yeah very well thank you mate um how's uh the covid19 impacted things up there not really it's got really nice and calm apart from you know nice flyable days where you know we can't go out obviously um it's the first few weeks have been brilliant i mean just yeah. relaxing like a holiday. And it's taken us <laughs> about, well, till now to start wanting to get back to work. <laughs> I mean, I'm still I'm still not in a position where I want to get back to work. Definitely. This is, uh, it gives me a lot of time to do things like this. Yeah. Have it my way. I, this, this would be what I did all the time rather than going to work and teaching people how to fight and doing building work. This would be it for me. Yeah, me too. I mean, I've de- I, I'm definitely changing gear. Definitely. I mean, it's like retirement and it feels brilliant. I've, uh, I've made some furniture, painted my house, you know, we've fixed stuff and it's just been brilliant. I think a lot of people, when they go back, it, there'll be a lot of changes with people's desire for quality of life. Yeah, I agree. I said to my brother the other day, I think um, I think I'll be more up for doing, if the weather is nice now, sometimes I miss good flying days, but I said to him, I think now, 
I'll miss work and go on good flying days. And if it rains consecutively for seven days, I'll happily work a Sunday if need be. But I I think it's time to make a change rather than wait to get to 60 before you can start to live this lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, I always said I retired. Well, as soon as I started flying, I basically retired. I put it the other way around. Um, So, you know, this transition is easier for me, but it's, it's so, it's just so relaxing and so nice just to, not be stressed. Yeah, I bet, I bet tourism's taken a massive hit up there, though, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As with everything else, it has taken a big hit, yeah. yeah. Uh, at the moment, what's surreal is we're going around from our house, because we live in Keswick, right on the Derwent. <laughs> so our part of our exercise is, let's say, running around the lake. Catherine and I went running around the lake. And this is a beauty spot, and it, it, we're on our own. And it's, yeah. see hundreds of people, and there's no one. Which is nice and it's great, but I really feel for the people that haven't got that. Um, they're not fortunate enough to live somewhere beautiful. Then the people that are in the towns and cities that really are stuck and have to, you know, they, they have a right to go and exercise and they're with lots of other people doing it. It's, I really feel for them, really. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like there, a lot of people are critical on Facebook and stuff of people going out. And I said to them, like, you forget that there's a mass portion of the population living flats or something and don't even have a garden. I know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I mean, it's one of them. It's temporary, you know, we have to just ride it out for now. And uh, of all the things, it, it could have been worse. It could have been a lot worse. I, like, you know, we've got to stay inside and not go to work and get paid to do it. That sounds awful. Do you know that uh, that lovely video that went out, the the, one, the the British one, where it says, I can't know, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear on this. Yeah, you can swear on it, yeah. Uh, the video where it says, fuck all, have you seen that? Yeah, I have, mate, yeah. It's well, that was a brilliant one. Absolutely I mean, brilliant. Social media has become a lot more, uh, it's one of those things, A, it's got absolutely horrendous, and sometimes you can't, like I read all this 5G conspiracy stuff that pops up on my thing, and I'm like, and then all of a sudden, though, you get some people being so creative. One thing gets said, like the Trump with the disinfectant, the, the memes that really, come out in really five minutes. Yeah. It's shown how good the British sense of humour is. For, you know, everyone's sharing jokes. It's just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It has been super. Bad things always. And yeah. there's a lot of good that's come out of this. Yeah, I think when you look at it from a... Uh, on a societal level and um, a person-to-person level, I think there's a lot of good have come out of it. People are spending a lot more time checking up on people, speak I yeah. mean, okay, remotely and via social media maybe, or maybe via text, but people are communicating a lot more rather than going to work for eight, nine hours a day and yeah. not having the time or effort to speak to people. I think it's, yeah, but the benefits are there. Yeah, I think this is the world rebooting itself. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> it was the it was the quick control alt delete to task yeah, manager that's been working just pull the plug out <laughs> wait 30 seconds <laughs> but, um so mate yeah what you are uh, i i got you on people obviously know you uh through paragliding the one of the first people's names i learned in paragliding was obviously jockey sanderson and that's because of your DVDs and videos and stuff. And I remember Tim Carr, before I'd even flown, Tim Carr put on a VHS tape, I think it was, of uh, security in flight or something like that. It was one of them. But um, And I watched it. I was like, wow. And you were like one of the first names that, uh, that came with Paragon. But you became sort of like a bit synonymous with safety 
and I to and I to fly paragliders properly. So let's fuck that off a minute. Let's. Right. <laughs> what I want to know is where it started for you. How did you fall in love with it? What got you going? Where did this all come from? Um, the first flight I ever did was uh, I told um, Ed Ed this, but um, the first. I was getting into hang gliding and uh, my sister was teaching it down in Brighton and with she was going out with Ed who had a uh, 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 hang gliding school and I was just came out of uh, outdoor pursuits instructing and I just came back from Scotland and I did a hang gliding course and uh, way in the early days 1986 87 and um, and then I, I really loved it I got really into hang gliding and then it was my 21st birthday and all my family, you know, they're all cousins, they're, we had a hotel in, a um, small hotel in Borrowdale in the Lake District. And uh, everyone piled in and it was a big do because it was my 21st and my dad's 50th on the same day. So we had this uh, big party and I thought, great, you know, everyone's going to have a whip round here. So they did, they all had a whip round and they got this uh, present. I thought, oh my God, maybe it's a hang glider, you never know. And uh, I opened it and it was a pink bag little pink bag and i was like well maybe it's the harness maybe it's a hang gliding harness <laughs> and, uh, i opened it and it, it was a paraglider i thought what's that you know it's a paraglider and ed he said oh this, this has just come into the country uh and it came in through uh sky sky systems michelle carne and uh just coming to the country and it was an airman rc9 so had nine cells so massive and he said he'll love this because it's paraglide. He could do it from a hill and um, he could walk up, you know. And I was like, what? but I'm a hang glider pilot. You know, I've never seen one of these. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I had to sort of smile and say thank you very much. And everyone was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we went outside to fly it. It was bloody windy. And uh, because we were sort of hang gliders and he was a hang glider, he didn't know anything about it. And so he said, I said, how do you fly it? How do you launch it? He said, oh, so just open up. He said, you grab these things, the risers, but you pull them and it'll go up, it'll inflate and then just run. I said, okay, cool. And how do you stop it? He said, oh, oh yeah, uh, there's some break there. These toggles here, you pull those. And if you want to stop, you just pull them right down. I was like, excellent. Okay. So it was really windy there. We, we had this, because I had a climbing center then, but it's massive long abseil rope, which is about sort of a good 200 foot, because we used to go in a hodge close quarry. Um, so they tied me onto the end of it, illegal, don't do that. <laughs> uh, and they all went to the other end. And I was like, okay, cool, here we go. So I, I ran forwards and it was about 20 miles an hour wind more. I mean, it's ridiculous. And I went shooting up into the air. And I could see all my friends holding up the other end, falling off the rope. They couldn't hold on. And I was going up and backwards. I said, oh, crap in it. <laughs> So um, I thought, right, what do I do now? And I saw that I was, I had a rope attached to me, my brother spinning off the end of it because he wrapped himself around. And I was being, the, the rope was dragging backwards over fences and things like that towards the hotel, towards the building. So, oh God, I'm going to either get the rope caught or I'm going to crash into that. So I thought I better get down. So I didn't know how to get down <laughs> with a hang glider. Just pull the bar in and down you go. I was like, wow. I remember both with brakes on so i pulled both brakes on and um yeah fully stalled it thought i do don't like that so i let go of them <laughs> and one and then yeah, through and hit a dry stone wall 
and landed. That was my first flight. So on your first <laughs> flight, my life to making flight safety. <laughs> <laughs> In your first flight, you got signed off for foot launch, toe launch. SIV. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That is yeah. pretty good going, mate. I have to say. Um, but yeah. after that, I got. Um, I really started getting into it, obviously, and it was, it did, Ed was completely right, it did complement the Lake District of Mountains, because I could fly, walk up a hill, and nowadays, everything's gone back to what it was at the beginning, so lightweight kits, small harnesses, things like that, you know, and I, I, I remember I used to go up these, you know, Eagle Crag and big mountains, and fly off, and I remember being terrified looking at the thin lines thinking what am i doing and <laughs> i always when i landed i used to clump them up and look at it and say well look that's bigger than a climbing rope and i'm happy to hang on that yeah. but as soon as you flew and you were high you thought, <laughs> so there was like now, there wasn't really anyone there's no one around you doing paragliding you didn't really know anything about it you literally it was a baptism of fire and running into a dry stone wall on your first flight was what really this is for me yeah yeah it was yeah. i got dragged over it backwards in the wind so i took the wall out and i was lying there laughing at the, the other side of it my sister came out, I said, you're right because she she was part of this present and she was oh my god i've just killed him <laughs> and uh yeah that was it i loved it and the, the funniest we, after that we went training everywhere and i went flying everywhere and uh i remember being dragged it, it, it was a windy day and we thought well, let's not do the, uh, the towing thing anymore let's just do ground <laughs> handling and uh but hanging with hang gliders you can tether quite easily um in the wind and it you know you hold the ropes hold the side and you just go up and just gently get a feel for it but with paragliders you they don't have the airspeed. <laughs> so we pull it up and again get dragged. And I remember getting dragged through all the cow pats and they're flying up. And uh, my brother's girlfriend was screaming at the side. And we were trying to pull it in. We couldn't get it in. And she was screaming as well. And we are just, and I looked up and she was holding it open. I said, Rachel, just let go, let go. She, oh, she let go. And it went, oh. <laughs> So how long did you stick with that paraglider for? Oh, God, I did my first hour on it. And that was at Hay Bluff. Yeah. Uh, and it, oh, it was painful. It was freezing. And it was the, the seat was uh, not a plank. We didn't have a plank. Troll made the first plank seat. Um, and we, so it's, you're strapped in it. So you're hanging there. Yeah. And an hour. I had to do an hour. I couldn't feel my legs afterwards or my hands. And uh, I was soaring on Hay Bluff. I couldn't believe it up and down up and down and the performance wasn't that great but yeah that and that was and i kept that for quite a long time it was uh red white and pink it sounds attractive yeah and jim who was hit that was when he was a student i'm pretty sure it was when he was studying marine design but he made that airman and now he's jim oh yeah that's that's amazing that just from that beginning that tiny little like almost sounds like a prototype wing makes that wing and then now he's one of the biggest uh, producers of wings and manufacturers of wings in the world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Jen and I have been together throughout both of our sort of careers, which is great. Yeah, it's awesome. So then from there, how long, what's the next step as in, was it cross country came shortly after or? No. How did you progress? 
we did uh, well because the, uh, I got uh, my instructor's license uh, with the BHPA quite because uh, I was an instructor with outdoor pursuits and stuff like that. Plus, I was hang gliding, and and in the early days, the, the paragliders didn't really know much about soaring and stuff like that. So it was quite it was a good time to begin. It was a good time to be there because it was a very uh, inspirational learning experience. And so we took a lot from the hang gliders. Um, I mean, I remember during our assessment, it was down at Doubles Dyke, actually, uh, Dave Ward Smith, myself, we got assessed by Bernard Kane, a great guy who was the head of the safety training committee. Um, and after the assessment, we taught them how to soar. So that's how early it was. Um, and these are all coming from towing, from winching. So it was it's great times. And um, yeah, from there, we then, Walter Newmark was the old boy of paragliding. He always said, you know, because they used to tow with rounds and things like that. And he said one day, because he was a sailplane pilot, he said one day, one day these are going to fly out of the airfield, catch a thermal and fly miles. And everyone laughed at him. Uh, and because we started doing cross country, he sort of... Uh, Took us under his wing, and uh, who has been very, he was inspira inspirational in the beginning, um, in sort of pushing us, making us fly cross country, and encouraging it. And yeah, we did, we did a lot, and uh, and then we went to the worlds in 1990. First time I ever went to uh, Europe. Oh my God, I saw our first time I saw Annecy. I shat myself. <laughs> I looked at the dons. Oh my God, flying on that. <laughs> it was like, yeah, and we flew up to it. It was we were on Falloch athletes, and um, which were you know, revolutionary at the time because they had um, plastic sticks in the leading edge to hold it all open, and that was shark nose technology then. <laughs> uh, and people used to, oh, you know, when they collapse, all the the plastic gets caught and you you screwed and all that. So malarkey. Um, so yeah, it was good fun, and uh, the Alps that was an eye opener. Nineteen. Custom nineteen ninety worlds, I think it was. So what you were nine worlds. So you were doing in the UK. What sort of distances would you be flying if you were in back then, like eighty nine ninety? What okay. sort of distances would you be flying? I remember doing the British Nationals, flying up Merthyr and I I landed fourteen uh, k's out, feeling pretty chuffed with myself. fourteen k's out, feeling pretty chuffed for myself. Yeah. <laughs> I got in the van. And I was thinking, yeah, I must be about second, maybe third. I'm not sure because that's about it. <laughs> and uh, I got a lift with uh, Mike Millwood. And uh, I remember <laughs> he's always laughing at my face because I was like, I, I thought he'd only done about 3K. And he said, uh, no, no, I'd done about um, 20. I got to, I, maybe, he get, maybe he got to Krakow, I'm not sure. But uh, I suddenly realised, shit, he's beaten me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, 20Ks was... Uh, was what it was those days. 20k. And then, so what, what sort of distances would you be doing when you go to the world in Annecy? Oh, right. In the world, well, we did training camp. We did it with Thierry Babu in Annecy. Um, and we did, we actually trained with the, the French team, which was really fun. But, um, and that was young Sebastian Bourquin and, and Richard Gallon, um, all these big names now, designers. But um, we, in the person, we had, 35 40k tasks stuff like that it wasn't mega but comparatively you're talking like double to three times the distance you're used to in the uk still so oh, yeah oh, yeah 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 so europe europe was still way in advance in in experience vaccine and stuff distance yeah. yeah yeah the big distances were done 
Well, Michelle Carne and the guys at Skysys were doing really well because they had the, the South. It's just like now, really. You've got the South, better weather conditions and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so they were doing good stuff. And then when the first flights to the Isle of Wight, things like that. And a lot of it those days was convergence flying, sea breeze convergence. So the yeah. dike, get up in the convergence, go along the wind. And not much going, you know, north-south, things like that. Uh, and then it got more and more uh, with people doing more and more things, Richard Carter and stuff like that. Amazing. Like those days, sat like I'm always like I love the fact that I'm in paragliding where I am and I'm flying at Enzo and it's brilliant. But part of me, like I'm devastated. I've missed those bits. I'm too young to like those bits. Sound amazing. Where nobody has a clue. You're figuring things out. They sound absolutely. I mean, they sound terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and it's no wonder you started to produce. What's that? I've still got some gliders if you want to fly them. <laughs> I don't... Oh. I they sound more like a base jumping rig than they do a paraglider. <laughs> oh, yeah, that one went. Uh, sadly, the airman went. But, I mean, the material was incredible. It probably would still be all right now. They, they were heavy, heavy. But, yeah, yeah good, good. I mean, yeah, that, those, the evolution of gliders is immense from then to now. It's immense. And the learning curve we went through in the bad days... You know, they were bad, but generally it's good. It's nice now. It's nice to see now such beautiful wings that look terrifying but perform so well, thanks to the pilot's skill and also the design of the wing. It's yeah. incredible. You know, when I was at the Worlds um, with the British team we, in uh, Khrushchev in Macedonia, I was so impressed at how close the pilots were flying together, how good they were flying. Um, and how stable the wings were. But, you know, it's just like a swan. You know, you see the elegance, but you can see they're flapping underneath. <laughs> <laughs> and the pilots, you know, it's doing all this whilst flying. Well, unless you're Guy Anderson. Guy Anderson's the only man I know who he could do anything he wants whilst flying. He could be doing a crossword. He hardly moves his hands in thermal. You see people on Enzo's and Gins and they're like, and then you just, Guy's just like, <laughs> Like Russ said, when I did this with Russ the other week, he said, like, he said, yeah, he said, I've regularly seen, um, I've regularly seen guys stop for a cup of tea halfway through a task and stuff, just because he's just done, he just literally just sat there. <laughs> <laughs> but even, I mean, my first, my first wing was a Nova Mambu, and, uh, and that was my first wing, it shouldn't have been my first wing, obviously, but it was my first ever wing, and I look at that, I got it out the other day to look at it, and I was like, what? What on earth is this? And that's new technology compared to the stuff you were uh, messing around with. Yeah. <laughs> so what? Um, you're what? 21, 22 around that sort of time. When I started. Yeah. Yeah, 20, 21. What else were you doing? What else was going on in your life around that sort of time, or was it? Just, was, you were outdoor pursuits guy, right? You yeah. Were, we we started. Um, I used to do outdoor pursuits with John Ridgeway. up in Scotland and survival training and things like that, canoeing, sailing, climbing. Um, and so when we came, we started the, my parents bought a little hotel in Borodale and I came to help them because when I left school, I was uh, a runner in a restaurant. So I sort of learned the sort of re restaurant trade and waiting trade. So we went down to, to all work together. And then as soon as it was established, I set up an outdoor school then when I was about 20, um, teaching, just climbing, canoeing, sailing, all that sort of stuff to schools and groups and management training. 
Uh, and then obviously when we started paragliding, I started teaching that and then, hey, presto, the rest is history. Yeah, and then, so you were in from there, from that age? From yeah. That, that was it, you were in it. That was like, well, I'm doing my outdoor pursuits anyway. And now you chuck the paragliding in and literally you're from, from the moment you're sort of an adult and doing adult life, that was you paragliding. That's it, yeah, yeah. So we started paragliding. It took over from the outdoor stuff. We still did it. We still had our company, Eagle Quest. We still did outdoor training. But the, I went more and more paragliding, which is great. And, uh, and it took me around, it takes me around the world, which is fantastic. But uh, there was a period, you know, when I quite, you know, my kids were growing up. I want to spend more time with them. So we set up um, a summer camp for kids, which I, the whole plan was to get local farming kids to, to, to do outdoor pursuits and to understand why visitors do it to the Lake District, why they come um, and to understand it. And also to get other kids from everywhere so that you get this lovely melting pot of cultures and people and kids. Kids are brilliant. So we did that for almost 10 years every summer, summer camp. And that was great because it's nice change to, you know, you don't always paraglide. Uh, and to sort of think, I'm having a break from paragliding, I'm doing this, yeah. was great as well. So I, I prefer contrast. I like change. I can't do the same thing all the time. Yeah. Uh, like I couldn't do teach, teach SIV all the time, but if I have a break, I come back to it energized and enthusiastic. Um, whereas if I did it the same location, the same day, I would just get the color would drain from me and I would just lose. So I think the reason I've been here for so long, I suppose, is because I keep changing, you know, different interests, different, and it just keeps that energy going really. Yeah, you are, that, I, I'm the same as you, even though I teach, like I teach obviously MMA a lot and uh, like three days a week or something, but if I want to have time off, I can. And I think that's, throughout my MMA career I was so dedicated as an athlete but then I'd find paragliding next minute I wouldn't train for like three months I'd just be off paragliding <laughs> and the, so that's why other people were becoming world champions and they're like what have you done Wes I was like I flew 45k today on my second ever <laughs> just you know just, I, I was just things when things get too all-encompassing for me the next thing that sparks my enthusiasm I'm gone that's I'm all into that then so well that's your character but, isn't it Full yeah on. Foot to the floor. That's me, mate. Yeah, I put that down to brain damage for being hit in the head too much. <laughs> it's got to have some sort of impact. Getting hit this much has got to make you a little bit compulsive, I should imagine. Do, do you think, because you've applied, you know, when you learn, you've applied your MMA stuff to paragliding. Because, you, you know, I, I noticed when I met you, you had, um, you know, that positive attitude, that focus, that learn from the people that know what they're talking about, that, you know, uh, and you take that from from what you've learned in fighting and techniques and things like that, and you apply it, can apply it to anything. And you can yeah. tell the people that are, have come from a dedicated sport like that, that understand, right, okay, I know where to go to get my information and the dedication you put in. It's great to see, you know, your your rise is quite meteoric in flying, isn't it? Thank you very much. Thank you. It's, uh, it's <laughs> nice for you to say. Thank you very much. I, um, I just did, like... From my sport particularly, if you don't learn that way, you get punched and kicked in the face. So, you like, you know, when I first started doing MMA, there wasn't really any strict MMA people. It was so new. So yeah. you find the best in each attribute and you try to put it together. And yeah. uh, sometimes you realise, actually, this ain't the best. And you realise that because people punch you. So when you come to something like paragliding or base jumping, like, uh, in my head, it was always been... Like 
also, you know, some people are just happy to get a paraglider and fly, which and there's nothing wrong with that. That's superb. It's such an amazing sport. That's the biggest part of the sport is the people yeah. who do that. But for me, I I knew like this is wow, this is like I'm obsessed with this. That I've always I never knew that there would be something that I could do with my life after fighting. But when I started paragliding, I thought, oh, I could competitively do this. This just gets me. This really gets me. So then I just decided, right, you find the best people, you talk to them, you ask the stupid questions, yeah. and you learn. And then when it then for SIV purposes, I went with everyone who does SIV. It came to you. I went to Flyo. I went because well, you go and you just immerse yourself, yeah. and hopefully that reflects itself in results. Then you know. So that's how I try to. That's how I try to approach things. Which I, other people don't do that, and that that's fine. But I think especially like the consequences in fighting, I get punched in the face. The consequences in paragliding can be much worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sure. do you find that um, since you found a paraglide, which is quite a sort of laid back, um, chilled out pursuit. Um, you has your approach to fighting changed? Uh, have you become, or could, can you still find the, you know, the, the anger and the power in you? Oh yeah, no, that's, that's always there. That's, uh, I've been, so I say the way that I fight, I try and be quite cerebral when I fight. I try and, uh, I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm hard. Lots of people who, who don't fight, lots of people who do fight are like, oh yeah, where's it hard? But I know guys who are like, you know, you punch them in the face, the whole game plan's out of the way, and they want to stand and have a war with you. Now, before I go into the fight, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to stand on the tree. Let's let's fight. And then someone hits me, and I'm starting going technical and take them down and get into positions where I'm not getting hurt anymore. I try and make, like, you know, I'm, I, I try and be as cerebral as possible. So that bit is still inside me, and I notice when I paraglide, Sometimes, you know, I'll be flying for three, four hours and I'm like missing, I'm on a glide and I'm thinking, oh, fuck. well, if I don't find anything else now, that's that's it, I guess. And then I start getting lower. I'm like, come on, find something. And then I go, that bit clicks in when I'm at work. Come on, where is something? What's, what are the birds doing? What's the sky doing? Look at the trees. Come on, something's going on. And I think that's the competitive side that I've drawn from MMA Definitely. that I try and apply to there. But in when it comes to a, paragliding back into MMA I think it's just been so long since I've been doing M like since I've been doing MMA the the, the transition the other way is not so big but right. when I put it into base jumping um when I base jump paragliding helps me a lot with base jumping because yeah I ana I analyze the risk a lot better I feel I analyze the risk a lot better as yeah. where a lot of base jumping you can get drawn into the moment and yeah. just go for something and I think paragliding even when it's not a dangerous thing even when you're just on a cross-country flight and i'm with wayne seeley and graham Steele or someone you know and they do something and i go to make my own decision and i'm like what are you doing Look, those guys follow it and you go and you make you be sensible and even that sort of transitions over with base jumping and stuff because you think yeah, definitely make you you make your decision that's it i'm jumping and then a little thing in the back of your head goes is that the best decision a second analyze everything so I think it has helped in no, in that respect. Who was uh, the guy? Was it Mark? I can't remember his name. That wrote Ground Rush. Did you ever read that? He, he used to. I have. Yeah, I have he, read it. Oh. He said a brilliant line. He said, "I stand at the end of the, uh, the edge, and I tell myself the necessary lies." Yeah, that is exactly <laughs> it. That is a great sort of line. You sort of think, yeah. "Well, we'll be all right." Well, the wind's not so bad, and it's not that steep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly like you tell yourself the necessary lies is that that's the perfect line definitely yeah i always remember that from that book good book good, good book. book 
Yeah. Yeah. So then you are. So uh, now you're you're in the world. You're now you're a competition pilot. Would you consider yourself? That's it. I'm a competition pilot at 22 or whatever. You're doing the worlds. Would you have said I'm a comp pilot, or are you still just a paraglider pilot who's doing some comps? I was uh, I I was very lucky because at the beginning we um, we got paid, and so we got paid if we were sponsored. So I was with um, you know over several years with Nova with Jim um, and Firebird uh, <laughs> at the beginning, and so you would get paid. You it was a job to compete. So we had it we had the, probably the best period um so you'd have a season it was like formula one when pwc was first invented first created there was a circuit not just worlds europeans nationals uh, and then little other national events then the pwc came where there was a six comp circuit around the world that was like formula one you'd literally have a team and you'd go around the world as that team uh and that was great fun and that was i mean that was a you know that was mainly competition flying with development glider development with courses that paid for that lifestyle and uh, there was a point which i left the school here um and did it professionally i suppose I didn't have a house didn't live anywhere and just moved from comp to comp to comp and uh, yeah, that's quite good. It's good when you're that age. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I'm just, I was just sat there and I was like, don't stop talking. <laughs> All my fantasies are drooling as you were describing it. We had, uh, it was, I, I, you know, you'd pinch yourself how lucky you were. You'd pinch yourself because you'd think, I mean, we'd do this comp in, and that was the days before EasyJet, before flights as such. I mean, there were flights, but not, you know, budget airlines. And yeah. so you'd finish comp in, let's say Italy or no, you'd be in Switzerland and you'd say to everyone, right, well, the next comp's in um, Piedrita in Spain. So uh, next weekend. So see you there. And everyone would go, yeah, bye. And they'd all go back to their work. So you do a week work, two weeks work. And then they'd all either drive through Europe or, you know, whatever. And they'd all start congregating at the next comp and it all starts again. It's the same people, the same family. And so you'd see the same pilots. You compete against the same pilots. And how many pilots are we talking at that time? Well, still a hundred, still yeah, hundred, hundred twenties. And then, then they would generally be in the national team, selected for the national team. So then you'd see them in the worlds and the Europeans. So it was a real fact, you know. You'd just you'd have, you'd have mates that you'd always see. Yeah. All, you know, you'd sit in the airport in the middle of uh, Venezuela, you know. Caracas, <laughs> and then suddenly all these pilots would tell you, all right, should we share a bus? Yeah. And yeah, it'll just, it's a family traveling around the world. And it was, uh, it was brilliant. I remember one day I had to drive from Firebird, which is Germany, to Monte Carlo, where we were testing gliders. And I had to do that from a Sunday night. We finished the competition. Oh, yeah, we finished in Bassano. Had to drive from there all the way acro across. And it was just a dawn, dawn drive, and I, the sun was coming up on the Mediterranean. I was going through the tunnels, you know, yeah. coming to sunlight, and then, and then you see all the coastline of the Riviera, and you think, my God! And I'm just about to go up to do eight flights in a day, and that's my job. <laughs> what were your what were your peers or your, your your childhood friends what were they doing with their lives at this time oh, driving through monte carlo and these all your mates are still back in keswick getting rained on or up in scotland and 
It was a life. It was a great life, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, like, still, it evolved. Similarly, um, when I was, like, 21, 22, I was a professional MMA fighter. So then I started coaching, and I was fighting all over the world or coaching all over the world. So, they, like, I got a phone call, and they're like, Wes, it was a guy in London who used to run a big show, Dave O'Donnell's name. It's like, Wes, got a fight for you. I'm like, okay, like, what is it? He's like, uh, Tim Radcliffe, ranked number one in Europe at the time. I was like, yeah, I'm listening. He goes, um, oh, and he's in the Dominican Republic, and we'll pay you five grand. I'm like, right. He goes, you and one other cornerman. He said, five days, all expenses paid in the Hard Rock Cafe and Casino. I was like, Dave. To be fair, mate, five days ain't a long time. Make it seven. He's like, all right, seven days then, mate. And I was like, I'd have done it for free. I'd have gone to the Dominican and fought anyone for a week's holiday. But now you're paying me. Like, this is amazing. And then you coach people. They get a fight in, say, Switzerland, uh, in Sweden or Poland or India. And they're like, yeah, you've got to take a cornerman. I'm like, I'm available. <laughs> so similar, I mean, I was... Getting the same sort of experience as you, but getting punched in the face from my trouble as well. But and you're doing it with paragliding, which seems a lot more like that. Your route seems better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you see, your equivalent of being punched in the face is I was risking quite a lot. Um, and uh, you know, you, you you came into the sport when it's evolved, and a lot of people have learned through the hard way how to glide, design, and fly. So. I think it's great to see the standard and quality of pilots now. Uh, the, the beginning, we were all still learning, and yeah, there was a huge amount of talent. But uh, now there's a lot more information and um, things that you can learn without having to do it yourself. So the, the exposure to risk is less, which is yeah, great. I, mean, I guess, uh, I guess you, the sport saw lots of injuries and fatalities, which the sport learns from and grows. Yeah. So they're vital. And uh, like uh, someone like myself benefits from all of that. Exactly, and someone yeah. like yourself had to go through it and be there. And even if it's not you, the one who's getting injured, you're knowing people who are getting yeah, yeah. hurt, et cetera. And you're using that experience to grow the sport. Yeah. I mean, look at, you know, the development of competition wings. That's how, you know, you're flying gliders. It's just safe, not prototypes. Um, yeah. You know, the way you can't do a world unless the glider has been available, CCC gliders for six yeah. months and everyone's got to be happy you know the right for everyone to have them not just team pilots things like that all that has made people safer then in the development you know talking to russ you'd have you know, understood about the development and everything has made performance and safety that that curve very similar which is great yeah because this i mean fundamentally it's a dangerous sport because you're off the ground so anytime you leave the ground it becomes inherently dangerous um but in the in the realms of uh, danger, it's very safe as well, which is a reflection of just how much effort has been put into the the safety of glider manufacture research, and then onto what you sort of I'll use the word dedicated yourself to in um, safety in flight, just because it's probably what you're what you're best known for widely. Um, in that everyone around the world knows who you are through your through your DVDs and stuff and your SIV training. As someone who's been on your SIV course, yeah. I know how good a course it is. I know also you you have that bit where you you know which pilot should go with which instructor and which who yeah. goes where. And you also leave a lot of pilots to make their own decisions and stuff as well, which is good. 
which I really liked. But what so what made you pursue that safety aspect? Was it something you enjoyed, or was it just that you saw that actually this is where we need to work on? Uh, well, I do love it. I still love it now, thirty years down the line. Um, and it, I I love instructing. I always have done that. Um, so you like you get off on people's responses and reactions and learning and loving the same sport that you love. Um, and there was a huge void at the very beginning of people understanding how gliders reacted and flew. And as testing, you learn that, oh, you know, when a glider does this, you need to react like that, or et cetera, et cetera. And that wasn't being imparted to the pilot, which is why we developed SIV, which is basically a test flight. If you look at, a, you know, uh, air turquoise, any, any of the test flights, SIV is a, a, a bit of each one to show roles, uh, your stability and, you know, glider control. Um, and so it evolves from a test flight. Yeah. And by doing a test flight, by collapsing a wing and understanding it, you get a lot of learning out from that, which is, you know, everyone understands that. And to see people benefit from it is immense. You know, to see that reaction of, oh, I was scared. It was a good sort of scared, but I went through it, I did it and I learned and I, I feel more confident as a result. That's brilliant. And, yeah. you know, the more people that do it, the more people that benefit from it, the better, because it makes the whole sport safer. I mean, you look at look at the, you know, the Colombian, the Brit Winter Open. You know, we had 120 or so pilots flying 100K tasks and um, taking off within 30 minutes on a tiny little launch. No accidents. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, yeah. that is brilliant. And that's testament to the training and dedication of the pilots and the design of the gliders and the whole ethos of the way things are, which is great. You know, in the old days, you'd expect, oh, okay, reserve deployment a day, something going, but now that's sort of evolved where pilots are, there is still risk, there are still accidents, but it's less and less now, which I think is brilliant. As in, well, doing that and get an understanding of their wing. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of um, accidents are pilot error, and in that pilot error, there's always a lot of elements you can't eliminate. Um, in you can do as much safety training as you want, but if somebody's really dead, got their head on, I'm getting in this thermal, and I'm getting in, and I'm, and the other person's, I'm getting in. You're going to get situations where those not ego, egos are wrong, but the drive to get in the climb is going to put the safety out of the window. Which you can do as much safety training as you want, then then you're going to come down to pilot error because all your safety training is out the window. So, yeah, that's you can... so that's different characters, different profiles. So yes. if you've got a pilot that's like that, then they're dangerous to themselves and others. So soon they will be coached by their peers, their mentors. You know, you get, I mean, look at, look at the, the winter. We had a few pilots that were going the wrong way, disrespectful. The minute, well, one, there's, there's a process of in-flight pilots saying something, which is brilliant. So it's immediate. They can control that immediately. Um, and also post-flight, they can come up to the meet directors and say, this pilot at this time did this, and we can see it on the track logs. It's fantastic. And it's, it's, it's not a, a penalizing process. It's a learning process. You know, we bring that, that pilot up. We say, look, look what you just did. Don't deny it. We can see this happened. You, you know, we're flagging it up. We're watching you. And they think, oh, crap, you know, and they learn from it. And they don't make that mistake or they make less mistake so they improve them their, their understanding respect and safety for themselves and others which i think is great where that now is is fantastic for that and you know 
obviously you get aggression and arrogance and competitiveness and you've got to learn well <laughs> some some people can never be coached out of that though i mean that's like with my sport if you've got that we get the guys who come with they're the hardest person in their pub and they want to come training and then the little 16 year old who weighs 10 stone is punching them in the punch them more in the gym and you learn really quickly in my sport that if you're arrogant you're obnoxious and you think you're the bollocks someone's going to educate you a little bit yeah, and in, yeah in this sport like some some people you just can't some people have to educate themselves as well. You can give them all the right pointers, but eventually you've got to say, you've got, you're going to have to learn. And that might be that you're not as welcomed. Every, you're going to be the guy on the periphery when everyone's having a great time. Everyone's talking as a pilot because I think there's going to be lots of people who listen to this who don't comp fly or haven't comp flown. Yep. And um, they won't realise just how much of a social scene there is um, on the on the comp scene. And how lots of people from all around the world really just want to talk to you and they're there to have a good time. It's lots of people's holidays. They're not just there because they want to win a race. They're there because it's their holiday as well. And so you're going to be on the periphery quite quickly if you're the guy who's making these mistakes and refusing yeah, to yeah. learn from, from them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I think uh, flying is a great leveler as well because that person's clearly lying to themselves. Um, uh, boosted by their own ego, arrogance, whatever you call it. But flying is a great leveler they can't lie and yeah you can you can you can bullshit but you, it always always comes out in the end and that's what i love about paragliding as well as any outdoors sport it strips that it makes all decent people honest yeah. you know you're not going to learn you're not going to move forwards unless you're honest with yourself and very quickly people learn that so they might come in that blustering I, i'm the big i am but they'll soon you know curve their edges and yeah. get their respect for the their glider the conditions and things like that and, and come into line you know but the key is welcoming them just like in the cage i guess just welcome them into the world and let them learn the way otherwise they're going to be punched or they have a crash <laughs> one of the two yeah yeah i uh... inclusive you've got to be inclusive because otherwise they think we're a tosser yeah, you become the bad guy. Exactly. Yeah. I, uh, I, when, what you say about it being a, a paragliding, being a leveler, what I love about it is that it comes down to it basically, even in if you're just going out XC flying with mates or if you're in a comp, what it comes down to at the end of the day is if you make a mistake, you're exposed. And that is i've been in comps and rust the world number one is fucked up he's on the deck and i'm flying over the top of him and you're like and like in the practice task and you speak to him afterwards like well that was fucking stupid wasn't it what did i do that for and i just love that you make one ballsy decision or you make one mistake and you're the guy who's you know i've done it before mate i've taken yeah. off taken off i've landed everyone else taken off behind me i've watched everyone climb out of froster and i'm about to bag my stuff up and go home it's just that's the great thing about it. You know, you yeah. just, it's you a great level. You learn from your successes. And the great thing is, a good pilot, you would not see kicking a helmet around a field or anything like that. You might temporarily, but the next day or the next time on takeoff, they'll be normal. They'll say, yeah, I flew shit yesterday. Today, I'm not mm -hmm. going to make that mistake and I'm going to learn it, et cetera, et cetera. And they won't do that wedge of failure where they, they swing from one mistake to the next because they're, and the key is just learn from your mistakes, debrief yourself, move on. And yeah. good pilots are capable of doing that.
Yeah, when we when I have a if I have a guy who loses in the cage, a guy who I've, co- who I've coached, um, he might go out and he might lose his fight, and we'll go back to the changing rooms, and he'll come back and be like, oh, where's it? I'm like, shut up, I, like, listen, your fight, your fight was two minutes ago, that that was where it ended, it ended right there. Go home. I don't want to discuss the fight. I don't want to know what went wrong. What you think went right. We're not talking about it. Like the fight's over. Tomorrow we can look at the fight because when you're talking with all that, like. Or you've got all that emotion, all that passion, all that. I'm not. I'm not interested. I know what went wrong. because I'm the coach. You don't need. You're not going to listen if I tell you what went wrong. You're not going to listen because you've got all the emotion of the fight. Go on. We'll we'll discuss it next time. We can build on this in the future. But right now isn't the time. That's you have to just let things go for a minute. Yeah. Let them yeah. kick the helmet around the field. Exactly. Exactly. Wait for their heart rate to drop. <laughs> yeah. Um, mate. So one question that always. I always um, thought appropriate for yourself is when do you think pilots should do SIV? Do you think that there's a, because uh, lots of people kick around an hourly time for me and I don't like the use of hours as a, as a gauge of experience. Um, so people will say X amount of hours and I'm like, but if all those hours have been spent soaring on the coast, you and you've done no thermaline or anything you're nowhere near as experienced with someone half the hours you've been climbing up to cloud base and floating around so i wondered what you thought the best time for siv was it's when you when you feel um you want to do it personally and that's irrespective of hours um and also when the glider is holding you back when you feel ah there's more to learn there's more i need to learn about the glider the conditions um, in order to move forwards, uh, that's when you should do it, and that comes at different stages of people's development through paragliding. So it, it might come in the first five hours, and I think you know what, I just want to learn, learn, learn. And that sort of character profile is a sort of person that would soak up the information like a sponge, react to exactly what you're saying, and learn from it. Um, so you, you have to respect different character profiles. Um, so we don't really, we do have a sort of minimum. Um, but it's, it's, there is none. It, it, it's, a, it's about your frame of mind. It's about where you are in your head. And to the other end of the scale, you could have a pilot that's been flying for a thousand hours and says, oh, I ought to do one. And it goes in reluctantly. He's already got instant motor skills. So he's not even listening to you. When you say right brake, he's not even listening. His brain's already pulled left because yeah. he's, that's what he's learned. So it's actually better to do a course early when you're a blank canvas and you respond just to instruction. And as a result, from that instruction, and then what we do is say, right, every maneuver is done in your own time at the end. So in your own time means in total silence. So you're learning yourself how to get it into and out of the maneuver. Um, And that goes deep, that goes instinctive, that goes um, to your piloting skill, not responding to break, left, right, that you're doing nothing apart from responding. But what we do is introduce you, and then you do it yourself. And that can come at any stage. Uh, it depends on where you are in your head. Um, and what can happen is if a pilot says, yeah, I'm really, really ready. And they come on a course and they're not, their reactions aren't right, or they're not enjoying it, their performance curve is, is tipped. Then we back off the training and we turn it more to pilotage, more to control, more to understanding subtlety of the wing as much as everything else. Uh, and every, Every course, although there's a standard course, 
every uh, flight is one-to-one. -one. It's between the SIV instructor and the pilot. And we can change it. As long as they're not introducing new things in the air, you can change it um, to suit the pilot, to suit their skill set. So, yeah, it's, a, it's all about when the pilot feels they're ready rather than a, an hourly or a you must do it by then. But if you're going to fly in thermic conditions, if you want to fly cross country, then yes, you should do an SIV. I mean, I, I, uh, I have these discussions a lot, um, especially within the local uh, Avon group. I, yeah. uh, I've done, done a couple of talks about it. We lost a couple of pilots and stuff, and I've done some safety talks and stuff. And I say to people, people are like, yeah, but I'm not going cross country, so I don't really feel like I need it. I'm like, are you thermal in? And they say like, yeah. I'm like, so if you get a collapse and there's a pilot below you and a thermal, you have an onus to know that you can take care of that or at least avoid falling through the pilot below you, right? And you see their mind changes a bit then. And like I say to them, it's not, it's, SIV is not just something for XC pilots because they're the ones who are putting themselves in the most, like the moment you play with thermic air, you're in as much possibility because realistically, you're probably going to, you're probably going to spend more, if you spend two hours ridge shoring and climbing to base and messing around, you'll probably be in more thermals in a day than I will be on a long XC flight. Yeah, exactly. I climb to base, I glide as far as I can. I climb to base, I glide. So in 100K, you might only do six thermals, you know? Yeah, and, um, and fly with no people. Exactly, Whereas yeah. site in thermic conditions, you're flying with 30 people. And, you know, that's even more potentially dangerous than anything else. It is, you know, the risk to yourself and the risk to others. Uh, and you, you do, as you say, have a duty to protect other people. And uh, by you being able to control a glider, you're then able to protect others. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I say, look, I, my way of summing up SIV, and you may disagree, and, you're, and I'd like to know if you did, is I say SIV isn't about making you safe. It's about making you understand what's going on. So yeah. you then, your reactions you gain from understanding what's going on is where the safety comes in. But yeah. understanding what the wing's doing. I mean, the amount of times now... I'll get a collapse, a, a, like asymmetric. I won't even need to look at it. I can yeah, just no, feel no. I've reacted. I make sure I'm. I make sure my heading's good, and then I look up to clear the little cravat or something. Yeah. Just because I know, and people, oh, you're, you're good. It's nothing about doing a good pilot. That's happened a lot. So, I, well, I mean, SIV teaches you prevention as the cure, not not you know react. Exactly. And, you know that prevention of instantly weight shifting, instantly controlling, and then dealing with it is we say instinctive is an easy word to say but you learn instinct um and one way of introducing that learning phase is to do siv because then it shows you oh right that's what it feels like that's what it does and therefore you become more and more instinct it's, it's the same as active flying people don't understand active flying they think, well, yeah as you fly actively so we would what does that mean you know your, your body movement your hand movements and you know we're, we're flying moving our hands our bodies reacting to the wing and the wings not even it's for someone looking at the ground it's just flying like that where it isn't the pilot's reacting and preventing or using it so if it gently dives they use that dive to turn tighter uh, and using uh, situations to their advantage so it's understanding the subtlety siv it does you know their tick boxes their maneuvers you you do but their secondary learning from all these activities are what people should understand and take home more than the actual primary learning.
Yeah, I th and also, um, so w I'm not going to get too deep into this, but the, the neurosynapses in the brain yeah. are being trained every time you do that. And it's yeah, you exactly. can watch a hundred videos of it happening and you can watch, you can talk about asymmetrics and stuff. And you say, oh, I've had a, I had a couple of asymmetrics when I was flying. It's like you, your brain needs to create neural pathways yeah. that respond to what's happening. And the only way you do that is to go through it more. So. Yeah. Uh, and people do, like that's an act. That's the way the human body develops and learns. Yeah. So that's not that's not even a theory. That's just that's where it is. So doing that more is obviously the better. And I, I, it shocks me how much negativity I get come back about SIV. The amount of people who say, like, "Yeah, well, I've been flying for X amount of time. SIV can't compensate for that." I'm like, but it's not. It's not trying to. Like they're like, oh, it's complementing it. Exactly. It's a lot of people's fear of failure. Fear of fear of. Um... You know, a lot of the part is flying a long time and oh, I don't need to do one now. It, it's quite a lot of the psychology of fear of failure, fear of, you know, the unknown. The minute they do it, they realise, oh, OK, uh, they learn from it and they move on. And they're not under pressure to do the manoeuvres. You know, a lot of people won't do one because they think they have to do a stall. or well, yeah. You don't have to. Um, but when you do, you'll realise how all right they are. And there's various techniques to making them even more all right. Um, but it's that getting over that hurdle and that they do, you know, any pilots that that do them, as you know, will, will always, always benefit from them wherever you go. Because all instructors, they have different ways of teaching, but the, the message is the same. Yeah. And I, I, it's one of those things, you're, you're 75 hour pilot who's just started doing some XC and you're a thousand hour pilot who's an XC guru. Like, this guy at 75 hours doing an SOV is not going to make him the thousand hour pilot. But when the thousand hour pilot gets that big collapse, he's going to wish he had the training that the 75 hour pilot had because, and it's like, well, I've been flying for X amount of years. I've never had anything really go wrong. No, no but let's not wait until it goes wrong until we realize we need to know how to fix it. So I, I, it does. And I mean, I, it just takes me back a little bit that, that people are like, well, I don't I think mean, just do one, just do one then and see. Yeah, just, you don't have to do it all. Yeah, just do one. I mean, I'm obsessed with it. I love it. I, 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 I've done four SIVs because, and I want, I do them annually if I can because I really enjoy it, you know. And yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I, my last one I did was at Flyo, and it's like 35 stalls in two days um, on the, on Ice Peak 6, Nord Ice Peak 6. So like 35 stalls in two days, just and that was only because one day we only had two runs, so we couldn't do as many. Um, <laughs> and on the last stall, um, Fabian's like, "Where's you're okay? You're on your own, mate. Just do a dynamic full stall for me, please, mate. Rapid exit, dynamic." I've never got in such a mess in all my life. <laughs> then 35 in two days, I've oh. never got in such a mess. And I've got the video of me laughing, twisted, rotated, and I'm laughing because I. I fucked it up so much and I, I exit, I catch the surge and he came over the radio and he's like, Wes, what the fuck is that, man? I was like, <laughs> just, just that quick second, it just got away from me. I don't know what happened, you know? And that was after, I was probably just exhausted and a bit tired. tired but yeah. um, even though I'd done so many, it got away from me, I lost it. But I was relaxed enough to still know, I know where the glider is, I know I'm just, I know I was behaving and I know where my reserve is if I need it. Yeah. At no point was I like, oh, well, you know, I was just yeah, yeah. a bit relaxed. And that's all just not because I'm good. It's because I've done 35 stalls in two days. Yeah, exactly. Repetition. 
Yeah. It, yeah, repetition. I mean, I remember a stall that I did with you in Turkey. It was the windy day, and I was the only one who flew. And uh, I came over the box. We were doing stalls. Yeah, Wes, you can do another one. So another full stall. <laughs> yeah. And then you came over the radio and went, Wes, do you think you're going to make it back to the beach? And I was like, <laughs> that's what I paid you for, getting me back to the beach. <laughs> I just made it in nice and low. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a good day. Uh... Um, so now you've... Um, getting away from the the safety side of stuff um you are your involvement with the bpra and the british team and stuff now mate you're yep. quite heavily involved with the british team now aren't you yes the british team manager now there we go which is a great uh, title um and one that you, you know you you relish and um take honor from um and you want to do a great job for the you know british pilots everyone so it goes uh, you know, I think we're, we're representing every club flyer when we go and do a comp. And it's important that we give it 100%. There's no point being there if you don't. So, yeah, uh, it was really enjoyable. The first major comp I did was um, the Worlds. Uh, learned a great deal. Um, and we'll continue to learn. But the great thing is the coaching. Uh, it takes a long time. You know, it's it's minimum three years. Uh, and you just you learn from each other. You, although the selection is only based on position, you are you are flying with a squad that gently changes. So everyone must know the way each other works and respect and respect each individual for the way they, they the style they fly. And it's the key is coaching, getting the best out of that. Yeah, oh yeah. So for people who don't know, this is one of the good things about team selection. It's not who you know, or, well, guy's been flying longer, so guy's definitely going to get a place. There's none of that rubbish. It's based on your uh, your ranking, right? It's how you get a selection into the into the team. Yeah. yeah. And it takes, is it the top four? It depends and, on the competition. So yeah. it would be four, four and one, uh, so four of one sex, one of another, or five and one, or, or whatever, six and two. Depends on the comp. Yeah, and we then are by the competition, right? This is a four and one, so the Europeans is coming up, and so we've selected a squad, uh, four and one, um, from the top. So you say, right, the top four are these, so you invite them first, and then, for example, Russ uh, was able to do it because he's got the points, but he said, no, I'm going to give my place to the next person because uh, I want them to learn from the Europeans, it's not as important to me. Um, so then we then say, okay, next one down, you're invited. Then they might say, well, actually, as Sebastian did, say, well, actually, as Russ did, let's give the place to someone else. So they gently bump up until we've got the, the top four. Yeah, so basically like, all the, there's lots of people out there, maybe younger pilots, may, maybe slightly older, but still want to do uh, comp flying. And they're like, yeah, but I'm never going to be in the top two or three pilots. And it just you just be, just aim to just do as good as you can. If you're in the top 10... There's a possibility you'll get you'll get a shot. And also to be in the top 10, you're going to have to do the comps. And the more comps you do, the more experience you're going to get. Yeah. Which I mean, you just got to look at Martin Long is the guy who sticks out massively for me. Yeah, just he like from nowhere because we've got some. I mean, obviously, Theo, Theo, you can't is an exception. He's just been doing it so from so young and it's he's so good at it. And then you've got Seb, who's absolutely amazing. But someone like Martin sort of came from nowhere. He sort of got into comp scene, liked it, and then put everything he, he could into going to as many comps as he could, and then look at him now. Yeah. I mean, that, 
Martin is great. I mean, but that's the same as you because he takes what he's learned from his other competition sports that he's learned from. He's applied that same model to this and he's done so well. He's got natural talent. He knows how to learn. He knows how to respond. Uh, and he, he, he gets a lot from people. He gets a lot, um, which is, is, a, is a great role model, actually. And he's uh, a good inspiration. But it, what flying is about is, is that social aspect you talked about. And it's also knowing that you might not be selected for the, the world's team, but you'd be in a squad. Now, that squad then will train you. So the BHBA will invest in you. So we'll um, sponsor you going to an SIV course with the two-liners, with competition flying, with people like Russ, um, Guy and Barney and Malin. You know, these are really experienced pilots sharing their information. So you get these training camps, you get um, uh, various coaching opportunities that will then get you ready for the following year and the following year so that you'll generally be in a position where you, you get more and more uh, positioned positively and then go for selection, for example. But that whole process is an inclusive learning process. And you yourself has benefited from the BPRA courses and training. Um, and therefore, by doing them, you, you share it with the people you're doing it with and also your coaches. And then those coaches become your fellow competitors at a comp competition. And so you become more and more relaxed, more and more, um, uh, more and more used to taking in the information and and competing with people that before you thought, oh my god, I'll never compete against them. But now they're equals, and you you learn from that. And you yeah, get like as a result. Harry winning the Brits is a perfect example. You know, like just from early. I mean, he's been flying the same amount of time as me, uh, maybe a year longer. Um, and but just it's from early on entered the comp scene got into it and just fully immersed himself in the comp scene and now i mean everybody if anybody's got a question about points or about anything harry's the first person they go to because he knows it inside out back to front he's just obsessed with it and you just see the progression and you see how well he flew and this is another great thing i love about comp flying is that it's not about winning all the races it's just about being consistent yeah and just to be that consistent is like you can be third every single day and you're going to win the, the comp by a mile because consistency is the reward in uh in paragliding competitions which i love because take, take your chance if you see it yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. definitely um <laughs> yeah so i i i re that's what i i really like that aspect of paragliding because it rewards the people who consistently put in the work and become more and more consistent yeah you that, generally go up yeah which I really like that because you are you are rewarding the right aspects for me because yeah being fast and being pushy like Wayne Seeley the way Wayne Seeley flies you would think that's how a comp pilot should fly be fast fast I mean I don't know if you've ever flown XC with Wayne yeah. consistently just... and I've landed early with Wayne as well <laughs> exactly I got told early on by Wayne this is the one of the first things Wayne ever said to me because I was in excellent from an early uh from an from an early start so i've had a lot of guidance from wayne one of the first pieces of advice wayne ever gave me was don't ever follow me bud i just raised myself to the ground and he just I like you would think the way that he flies or the way that wagger flies where they're gone you're just trying to catch them all the time you would think that that's oh i need to be like that and then you get onto the comp scene and you see like ah it's not about making decisions all the time sometimes it's about just observing and yeah, which I love. I love that aspect of it. It's not about the ballsy one. It's not about the... Sometimes it is. A blend of all of them. 
Yeah, exactly. Which I really, yeah, I really, really enjoy that that side of it. So, uh, mate, the 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 sad thing for me, the worst bit about this year is looking like the North South Cup. That's, I mean, is there a chance that it could be later on in the year if needed? I don't. I think because the whole the beauty of the North South is its flexibility, and although it may is looking impossible. Um, if we could start flying and the weather starts to get good, then I wouldn't put it past us putting out a late North South Cup, maybe September. Perfect. It could Is be that, a priority. But I, mean, I haven't talked to the guys about it. Um, whether we have a rest, I don't know. The same with the British Nationals. You know, we, we had a chat at the comps panel last night and... Um, my feeling, my personal feeling is that, well, we can't risk the expense and uh, asking people to go to uh, uh, you know, locations where they have to get flights and expenditure. Why not keep it simple and, and stay in the UK? And if it's on, it's on. If it's off, we just can it. And, and everyone just stays at home and does their family thing. So um, it'd be quite, quite good to, to maybe this year for the nationals, for example, to say, right, well, let's just earmark end of August, September. And if if it's on, we have a Nationals. If it's not, we don't. Same with the North South Cup. Yeah. For this year, it's written off. So you might as well just get together and get together, share some airtime together and uh, have some fun. Cause... Oh, mate, everyone's going to be there. It's not going to be like last year. Everyone's going to be there because they've got the comp flying. So, I mean, I think if you said like, listen, we're going to earmark it for the month of the second the last two weeks of july um up until like the end of august we're going to earmark that any weekend we could slot the north south cup in just be ready to go pilots will be like yeah i'm good yeah let's let's do it let's, let's have that yeah, yeah. yeah we'll let's... get a minimum of 20 and yeah 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 i think so definitely I mean, it's a great it's one of my favorite times to fly i love the i love the calamity of it i love the i love everything about it where were we when we couldn't get up to the hill and i went in the carpet shop and got the guy to get his van out where, where <laughs> in wells oh what's the name of the place in wells the big the built wells one no it was um no we flew Langochen. yeah langochen that's it yeah so from langochen, and the coach we were all on the coach and we couldn't get up there and we were like well what now and then everyone was just out the car out the truck ar arranging something I love that side of it, the calamity side of it. And then I love the uh, when we all flew from Wells, Hay Bluff, and we all crossed the channel together. Massive oh, channel. Yeah. yeah. I like the rain then. <laughs> <laughs> and then the one in the Lake District last year, mate. Yeah. Just how, what, all week I was thinking, this is going to be horrendous. We're going up for a piss up. And then we get here and it was just. Best the most, Oh, how good were the conditions? I was so proud of the North South Cup, that, that, that flight, that was just, uh, to do that flight is quite rare and, um, you know, to have the opportunity to do it with such good pilots, with such a good attitude, you know, you can have, you have competition pilots that are arrogant and just comps, point, point, but the North South Cup is about skill and it's about having fun and to share this, my favourite place in the world with my favourite people was just the best day ever and, you know, to, for, to all of us to be over Scarfeld. And most people thinking, well, what's this hill then? You know, so that's the highest mountain in England. You know, right, well, I'm based now, so I'm off. And it, it's fantastic to see. And then I have this photograph of the, all the trace, all the pilots. And it is just, I look at it and think, wow, what a day, what a day. 
It was incredible. Yeah, that that's uh, uh, the, the Sunday, wasn't it? The Sunday was the triangle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That Sunday was just like just being sucked into cloud and just like being so high above everything, and it just be absolutely amazing. But then oh. to get then to get those wind con those conditions as well, where the wind was coming different, so you had to be on it a little bit. It was just ah, oh, I can't. I tell people about it all the time. I say to people, when I talk to them, oh, have you flown the Lake District? And they're like, no. I'm like, oh, you've not even flown the Lake District. Barney hates it. Barney used to do a lot of flying in the lakes with Mike Cove. And he always says it's the hardest place to fly because of the valley winds, because of the sea breeze influence, because of different things. You know, it's, you have to really think a lot. And that's why when we set, I set the turn, turn point to Scarpel, but we knew that the, the sea breeze, if it came in and pilots were late, they'd be in trouble. So it was testament to the skill that everyone arrived and had gone before the sea breeze came in. And the great thing is those pilots that were slow knew their skill set and knew that it's too risky to go there. So I'm turning now. And yeah. it's about knowing your, you know, your limits and operating within them, which is, again, testament to the attitude of the people from the North-South Cup. Yeah, and just the radio, the, talking on the radio, and it being like informal. I, I love it. The North South Cups one of my favourite, my yeah. favourite times of the year. So what about up with you now at the moment? You're doing any mountain rescue? You're involved in the mountain rescue, yeah? Yeah, yeah I do mountain rescue and um, first responders for the ambulance service. So we're just, uh, the mountain rescue is very quiet. We, we, we don't do anything really because not many people are on the hills. We had one one call out a couple of weeks ago at the beginning, but not not. What about really. compared to average though? To an average year, what would that be like? How often we, get we do about 130 call outs a year? Wow! So one every three days, yeah. um, or 120. So fluctuates between 100 and 120, 130 sort of thing. And first responders is about the same, probably more. So, but that's more urban. So that's for the ambulance. So it's different. They're two different things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm stood up as, you know, volunteer for the ambulance and the first responders. But again, it's quite quiet because everyone's ready, got everything ready in place. But because, you know, the British public are, are stoically doing the right thing, then it's all very calm. Everyone's. Yeah. I was talking to uh, Andy, one of the paramedics at the North Ambulance uh, this morning, and he was saying, yeah, it's calm. Yeah, there's very little happening. There's very little accidents, you know, road traffic accidents because there's no, no cars. And so it's all very calm because everyone's doing the right thing. It's, it's really quite reassuring. Yeah, I mean, even now is people with cancer, people with treatment that they need sorting um, should be prioritised now. You know, everyone's been focusing on COVID and all that and neglecting the people that need help. So now they should refocus and retask. Yeah, well, the government said yesterday, didn't they? They said, listen, the NHS is still here. Like, still, if you yeah, need us, still operating, yeah. come, you know, come come to us if you need us. Don't don't make silly decisions. We're still your NHS. Come to us. And I think it's fantastic that the on the on the grand scale, I mean, if you go on Facebook, you'd be thinking that every, around every corner is a group of 50 people. But in reality, most people are conforming. And, yeah. Uh, even too much so now in that people are avoiding going to hospital for things they should be. Yeah, that, this is a problem that we're seeing. But the, the calls we're getting from the ambulance service is quite often people that felt that they didn't want to cause any trouble. And it's like, yeah. no, 
cool. Don't don't sit there in agony. Yeah. And, and the, the message has to go out that yeah, don't be afraid to. If you've got a chest pain or anything like that, say so. You know? Yeah, that's why you've got. That's why we've got more first responders is to to allow people like yourself to still use the uh, the NHS. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh, I think you know. Like hopefully. We're going to start to see it peter down. Hopefully, we're going in the right direction, and hopefully, the lid doesn't get lifted off too quickly. And we yeah, can, exactly. like, that's the problem. Secondary. Yeah. yeah, people just get too restless. And I said this last night. You know, like, listen, all all we're giving up at the moment is a little bit of our freedoms, a little bit of our social time. The moment we act too soon, you know, we have to assume the worst. Yeah. Or we can't go back from the consequences if they are the worst. So, yeah. Stick with yeah, it, you know. I think so. <laughs> exactly. Mate, listen, thank you very much for this. Pleasure. I absolutely love talking to you, mate. It's great. And uh, I'm sure people are going to love to hear this. So, uh, but um, anything you want, any shout out you want to say, anything you want to tell, direct people to anywhere? No, all good. Just uh, enjoy being with your family and friends and see you on the hill when it's, um, it gets flyable. Lovely job. Matt, I'll cut this off. Stay on there and I'll say goodbye to you personally. But thank you very much, mate.